Um, okay, so let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, open our hearts and minds to your word, and by the Holy Spirit, empower us to in, uh, live in your footsteps. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, this week we have uh, the offering going to pads. Winter's around the corner, and uh, pads is, is uh, the uh, housing, temporary housing for the area here in DePage County. So it's going to be good, to, uh, good use here locally. All right. Um, any other any other announcements? Every time I've done this, there's always been another announcement. Okay, great. All right. Um, as most of us, we do when we go home and we read our Bibles, we turn to Bob Dylan. We have a uh, Highway 61 revisited. So today we're going to uh, take a look at Genesis 22 and the binding of Isaac. So if you could. Just hope, I mean, if you want to, you don't have to. You're welcome to. You get to to turn to Genesis chapter 22. Um, I introduced the idea a few weeks ago that Genesis 22 is a culmination of a lot of things that have been happening since Genesis chapter 12. And in the verses themselves, we find out that that is the case. So I guess I was right. I don't know. Pretty smart. So, um, let's just uh, let's just. I, I, I like reading this story. So, obviously, it's a very important story to me. If you know my son's name, so. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, "Abraham," and he said, "Here am I." He said, "Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering." on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the rams and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose, went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Okay, bam, done. Well, thanks for letting me read it. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, okay, so uh, some of the things just about the Bible passages themselves. In at the beginning of Genesis chapter 22, we have this uh, a word again for going. It, it, it's translated here in the ESV as just simply go. But it is the same word in Genesis chapter 2 when God says go. Remember, he's in uh, the land of the Chaldeans, Ur, and he has to go to the to the place where God's going to show him. That word for go is the same word. It's the same word, and so there's a, a kind of a unique connection happening between what happens in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. The also, too, though, the idea of go to the place that I'll show you is, is also, again, another verbal uh, kind of illusion between the two. It's alluded. So the question is, this land that God's giving to Abraham uh, as we understand it in terms of Genesis 22, it's not just simply geography. It's not just some like place to live. But in the Old Testament, God always has purposes attached to things. So really, the primary thing is, is God's going to show you this land for this reason. Okay, and so what are we learning in Genesis chapter 22 about this land? This land is for not just to hang out, to live, to live in some space, but this land has been given to them to do something. And what we find out in Genesis chapter 22, it is to do what Abraham's going to do, offer burnt offerings for worship. They are going to live in this land primarily to worship the Most High God. All right. So the thing is, though, is that what is the number one commandment? You know other gods before me. Okay? Now, of course... That's a hard thing to do. Uh, you know, by the way, though, so no other gods before you, before me, God says. Uh, think about it visually. I don't know if I said this before, but um, so what does before mean? Sometimes we just kind of think about it mentally. Hey, I don't want to have anything before God. He's number one in my life, that kind of thing. But think about it visually. It, it means specifically that there's going to be nothing before God in between you and God. So pretend that, you know, think about it visually, is that God and you are together, and there's nothing before him, meaning there's nothing in between you two. That is part of what the first commandment means. Now, of course, if you think about it that way, then that radically changes how we understand what can come before God. It's not just, you know, an uh, an overt idol like, uh, you know, Hinduism or Islam, or even it could be a thing, too, like money or something else. Nothing can come between you and God. Nothing. This is what God is asking, okay? What that means then, there is sometimes that things that are very good can actually come between you and God. And this is in the background of what's happening in Genesis chapter 22. Okay. 
So, um, uh, so, so that's you know. So, what is this place for? This place is a, a place to worship, where nothing comes in between God and Abraham, or God and His people. Okay, perfect. Um, there's some seats up here if you want to sit close to me, guys. <laughs> you want? You, you, you don't have to though. I just. You know, for one of me, one of the hardest things for me to do is stand. You know, I, I think that's true, right, in life? One of the things that's hard to stand for a long time. And I always think it's interesting because in Exodus, bring it back to the Bible, of course, is um, in Exodus 14 when, um, you know, God say, you know, just before he, he parts the Red Sea, God tells Israel basically to stand still. Don't do anything. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of it. You know, of course, he has the, the fire and the cloud, and then he parts the Red Sea, and then they've got to go through it. But I always thought about when God says, you know, just stand there, stand still. I'm always like, oh, man, that's got to be exhausting. You know, the whole point is, like, you know, God does everything. But, man, standing still for, I mean, how long did that take God to take care of things, right? I mean, it's got to be all day. Maybe even longer. So I bet you they were ready to start walking when that Red Sea was parted. Okay, anyways. So hence me, you know, I just, I was like, I'm, my heart goes out to you guys. And I thought, oh, man, I can't even stand for that time. It's too hard. So learned something about Pastor Nelson this morning. Okay, well, I, actually, the women's Bible study on Friday morning, I already know that because I never stand. I sit in my chair, ex-cathedra, I say. Okay, um, for anybody who knows what that means, that was a pastor joke. All right, now, uh, so as they go along... Uh, does Abraham tell Isaac that he is, in fact, the lamb that he is going to offer up as a burnt offering? In verse 8, uh, there, there could, you could make an argument that Abraham actually tells Isaac by the Hebrew that he's, he's when Ab- you know, Isaac says, hey, you know, where's the lamb? Uh, Abraham actually tells him. There's, there's, a good, there's a good chance you could say that. I, I'm not going to say yes or no. I mean, if I had to, I'd say yes, but it, it's not overtly clear. However, by the end of the reading, we find out that Isaac, in fact, does know he's the lamb because Isaac is bound. It makes special note of that. No other sacrifice in the Old Testament uh, is the uh, victim bound. So why, why is he bound? Well, he's bound to show something about the character of who Isaac was and what's happening here. So that goes along with the age of Isaac. How, how uh, old was Isaac? Um, some old, well, medieval... Jewish rabbis, uh, you know, have them between 13 and 25. The word that's in the, in the scripture, though, is a kind of a strange word because it can mean several different things. It can mean a baby, as it applies to Exodus in chapter uh, Moses to Exodus chapter two, a teenager, as it applies to Jacob, and then uh, no, wait, yeah, Jacob, and then um, a consenting adult in Joshua six, but. Obviously, Isaac is not a child. He can carry wood. He can carry on a very intelligent, probing conversation with his father. And the word also is the same word for the servants in the story. So uh, that's important for us to to know about Isaac himself. Because how old is Abraham? He's up there. He's not 100 years old. Basically 100 years old. 
Uh, you guys remember Harold Lang? Anybody, I mean, some of you might not know him, but Harold Lang was a 100-year-old man here at St. John. And we, uh, in, in making my uh, homebound visits with him, we, this, this Bible verse came up. And uh, I said, Harold, man, do you think you could catch me in a race? And he looks at me like, well, no. I'm like, okay, good. I just wanted, you're just proving a fact. And I said to him, I'm, I'm going to use that in Bible study sometime. I'm going to tell a 100-year-old man cannot catch a young man. Now, the reason why I say that is because when Isaac is bound, it's not like, hey, Dad, I'm overpowering you, the young kid. I'm going to make him be bound because a young man can run away from a 100-year-old man. So, uh, in order for Isaac to be bound, Isaac had to let himself be bound because Abraham's a 100-year-old man. Okay. Um, oh, and then finally now, I mean, there's a lot of other things happening in this, this Bible text. Uh, I just wanted to highlight these kind of three things. And then this is the final wrap-up of the promises. Promises all start in Genesis chapter 12. They're repeated. This is the seventh time that these promises are repeated. But of course, in the seventh time, they're more generous. If you take a look at, um, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply. Um, There is this uh, abundance happening here. Um, And then also within the promise, too, that the Lord swears by himself. Uh, This is the only divine oath in in the stories here. So this is the final ratification of what he's promised in Genesis chapter 12. So what happens in Genesis chapter 12 and everything in between is kind of coming to a fulfillment. So this is like a block of promises. And rather than understanding these promises kind of individually along the way, we have to understand them in their entirety. All these come together. So what God promised in chapter 12 is really, or as it says, surely here, surely will bless you, surely multiply you. If there was any doubt in chapter 12, by Genesis chapter 22, after this incident, there is no question now what God, do, what God speaks will happen. Now, of course, this is the last time that God will speak to Abraham in the Bible. So who has the last word in the Abraham story? God. All right. So this is all important for us to remember as we then start to struggle with this story. A couple things about uh, history of interpretation. Mount Moriah in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, is associated with the Temple Mount, with the place where the temple was where the sacrifices were made. So that goes back again. I'm going to give you this land for this purpose. What happens in Genesis 22 now then comes to be ordinary time in the, the second temple, well, the, the life of Israel as, he, as the sacrifices are made daily. Now, what do the sacrifices signify for Israel in related to their relationship with God and them? What kind of relationship do they have? So you'd have to, I know we didn't talk about this, but in case you know anything about temple theology, those sacrifices signify what of the relationship between God and his people? Forgiveness of sins? The blood of the covenant? Uh, what does the blood of the covenant uh, ensure between God and his people? Communion. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. 
He's with them, and they are with him. All right, perfect. So, okay, good. Hang on to all that stuff. Um, oh, oh, yeah, then I, I just I kind of gave it away. So, so some of these actions in Genesis uh, also foreshadow what's happening in Exodus. Uh, after the, the Exodus of Israel, they have to go three days' journey into the desert to the mountain. On that mountain, God and his people are together. Um, every father in Israel is expected to dedicate his firstborn son to the Lord. Obviously, we see that in even in New Testament times with Jesus being dedicated in Luke uh, in chapter 2. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of information there, which is really cool. Um, all, all he's saying is that what's happening in Genesis chapter 2 then becomes uh, a, a template for what's happening all through the rest of the Old Testament. Now, the word tested is uh, I don't like tests. I've never liked school, I have to admit. And so I really am empathetic for those kids who don't like school either. So when I see Abraham was tested, of course, I think that's the worst part in the entire story. I mean, forget about the fact that Abraham's got to kill his son. I mean, come on, God. You have to test Abraham. It's awful. Well, maybe I'm the only guy on that. But okay. So the, what is the word test? It, it, it is uh, just like the Exodus experience. But the thing is, though, is that when God tests Exodus in the wilderness, we many, oftentimes when we hear the word test, of course, we think about achieving some score. But what God is doing with the word test in the Old Testament is manifesting the character of a person. So, when, which is interesting, when, if, when Israel tests God, what, what is his character that comes out of that test? Which of course is mercy. Even though he, you know, he's really upset, and uh, oftentimes will, you know, you know, say that he's going to do all these things, and then usually Moses or somebody else intervenes, and God says, "Okay, you're right. I won't do that." Um, but as Abraham is tested, it reveals then the character of who he is. And of course, as we think about from Genesis chapter 12, he is an idol worshiper who doesn't really know what he's doing. And now we're coming to Genesis chapter 22. And these intervening moments of God in his life, have they changed who Abraham is? Okay. And of course they have. Because we already read the story. Um, And then also, too, in the New Testament, within the New Testament, they're already making these connections between Isaac and Jesus, uh, most explicitly in Hebrews 11. And then also, too, uh, many of the early church and all the way up through the Reformation, I just highlight Valerius Herberger because I like saying his name. Herberger. Uh, he, he's a Lutheran pastor in the German-speaking lands of Poland. Uh, I mean, you know, 500 years ago. Uh, who, And along with Luther and a bunch of other... This was just typical. The angel of the Lord in the story is Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate Christ coming to... Uh, to Abraham's aid. Okay, anyways, so all that is in our minds, hopefully. Yeah, Bill? Just one more thing on the word test. Yeah. Since you like it so much. Yes, I love it. Thank you. In, uh, Spend a little more time on it. Uh, teaching the Lord's Prayer. Isn't an alternate translation on lead us not into temptation? Not put us in uh, 
the temptation put to the test, yep, those are all related. That's right. Yep. Um, context sometimes will def- you know, help us define what that means. Yes, do not tempt me. Like, you know, we say that, right? Sometimes to people, like to our children. You know, usually when they're testing our patience. Yes, yes, Bill, that's right. But uh, it, it doesn't always, it's not always exactly equal, depending on context. Yep, good point. That's great. Awesome. Any other, any other things? All right, so through all this, I have a lot of questions and, and comments about this biblical text. Um, when God asks Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering, what in the world is going on? Child sacrifice. You know, this is usually not a story I would lead if I was doing an evangelism call. <laughs> Let's sit down in your living room and let me read you a story from the Bible. Because, of course, it's going to sound crazy. I mean, what kind of God is this that asks Abraham to sacrifice his son? Not, not only just a random son. I mean, you know, the one you like the least. It's, it's the one he loves the most. <laughs> okay? So, yes, uh, so this is the thing. So, I mean, we're talking, it, it, uh, David said, he, uh, uh, Isaac is the miracle child. This, this is the one that Abraham's been longing for. He is a good son. Okay, so keep that. So now I asked you that question, remember, before about having nothing before God. Okay? And, and then God asks to get rid of something that's really good. Now, um, other religions at this time practice child sacrifice. Now, just a couple of chapters earlier, when God says, hey, I'm going to eradicate Sodom and Gomorrah, what's Abraham's response to that? Oh, hold on. Yeah, are you sure about that? You know, there's a, there's a few nice folks. I got neighbors down the street. They're okay. Exactly. He intervenes for them. Okay. He intervenes for, I mean, Lot, who, first of all, I mean, Lot was a really stand-up guy, right? I mean, he was a guy that we really... I wish I had an uncle like Lot. No. No, I mean, he's, he's kind of, you know... He's, he's a multifaceted character. Different levels to Lot. So, Abraham intervenes for Lot. And anybody else, perhaps. Now, when it comes to this point, Abraham does absolutely nothing. Again, what is going on here? I don't know, I, I would think that Abraham's a normal person. Remember, he is a normal person because he's an idol worshiper. He's a guy who's learning to grow and trust who God is. But now at this point, he seems very abnormal. I, yeah. That bothers me a lot. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there's been a history of interpretation where people just are just angry about this. I, 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 you know, I'm like, what in the world's going on? So... Not only that God would ask this, but also, why didn't Abraham say anything? What in the world? Just even like, hey, you know, are you sure? Don't you remember? You promised me that this guy would be the one. Okay. So, yeah, so what is Abraham's state of mind? One of the interesting things about this Bible passage is there are all these extreme things happening. Abraham being tested, Isaac being, you know, submitting to the fact that he's going to be uh, a burnt offering, which means there will be nothing left of him. 
Um, and there's nothing said about Abraham's state of mind. You get some thoughts about Saul and David and Solomon and, you know, throughout the, the Old Testament. But you get nothing about Abraham. It's almost like he's just kind of like a robot. Do this. And he just does it. Okay? So, so that, I, I, first of all, I think that's on purpose, by the way. This is, I think, a literary, interesting literary thing that happens. Um, now then, and then finally, though, so then we, if we start asking these questions ourselves seriously, sometimes we start rationalizing. We start explaining things away. So that makes us feel better about who God, or, you know, kind of who we think God is. Um, you know, so was Abraham lying to the servants about coming, them, coming back? About them coming back? I mean, Isaac and Abraham. Hey, you stay here. We're going to go up over there. We'll come back. Meaning, was he not going to do it? Or, you know, is he going to pretend it? I mean, now of course, uh, history of interpretation has always said, Abraham already believed in the resurrection. Maybe. Don't know. I mean, at this point. Because um, uh, I think when he, uh, Isaac asks him about the lamb, and he says, God's going to provide, provide for us, that's a, that's a huge confession of the faith for Abraham. He's, he's, he's put the line in the sand that he's going to side with God at that moment. And that is, you know, not right at the end. So you can imagine the days, well, who knows, maybe one day or two days or three days that he had resigned himself to Isaac being dead. But spending that entire time with him. Oof. All right, now, uh, when God says, now I know, well, what does he know? Did he not know something before? I know, but did God not know that already? Did God could not see in the heart of Abraham? Yeah. What's that? Abraham might not know that. So God had to tell Abraham how he was. Well, God's the one who said it. Now I know. Now I know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, I mean, those are all great interpretations. That's just not in the Bible. So, I mean, it's, that's, that's one of the things about this Genesis 22 text that is very difficult, and I think that's on purpose. Okay? So, let me just hang on. Uh, yeah, so, Mar- Marianne. So, how do we know that this is all a test for Abraham and not, like, more of a test for Isaac? Uh, well, it says a test for Abraham. The idea, though, so now your question is, did we know that if it was a test for Isaac? It doesn't say that in the Bible, okay? But, I mean, the, the idea of a test, meaning, you know, was this going to be hard? Does this show who, what kind of person he is? Yeah, that, that would apply then to Isaac also. But, but the actual word test is not applied to Isaac. Um, now, Marianne brings up another interesting point, because I believe it's Martin Luther, or no, I, I can't remember who it is. It's one, a Reformation guy. could be the Herberger or Luther who says that when God asks Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering, 
it's not just simply his son, but it's his wife and his God his, and himself. So that might, you know, so when God tests Abraham, that might, you know, you could maybe make an argument that somehow Isaac's being tested in that understanding too. Okay. You see, these are all good questions because I, I think this is very interesting about the biblical text because at the end of the day, when God asks Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering, either God doesn't really mean it. So what kind of test is that? What do we call that? I'm going to ask you to do something, but I don't really mean it. Is that really a test? Who said it? it it's a trick. That's exactly what it is. And I don't, I, you can't explain that away. Unless it's not a trick. Unless God actually meant it. Then again, we have this struggle. Alex? When he, when he says it is, it's the same sort of thing that he says when he goes in the garden and Adam and Eve are hiding and he asks where they are, that God still knows where they are, but he asks for their sake. Okay. Maybe, yeah, I think that's a great connection. Good job. Holy smokes. Sounds good. All right, now, uh, I, 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 what I, I want, so, so you guys, are, this is great. This is all part, I think, of the purpose of this biblical text, is that it is there for us to struggle over and ask these questions. And at the end of the day, we might be able to answer some of these questions, but we might not be able to answer all of them. And then what does that mean, then, for us in our life with God? That's really important for us to kind of consider. Because this will also apply then to a whole list of questions to Jesus and his death for us also. Okay. Uh, There's a couple of hands over here, though. David. Okay. I was uh, thinking uh, using a more modern phrase. Yeah, sure. The silence of the scripture and answering the question that's in our mind is that it doesn't matter how we interpret it. God's turning him every which way but loose. Good job. That's good. That's right. And at the very end of the, 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 the Bible passage, what, the, what is this mountain called? And what does that mean? The Lord will provide. You can't have any... Okay, so let's, I don't want to get ahead of myself real quick. We might have to because we're almost done. What was the, there was another hand over here. Yeah. Good job. Absolutely. And this doesn't only reveal the character of Abraham and Isaac, but it also reveals the character of God himself. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. He's making a distinction between the other gods around them because I, I think, I, again, it doesn't say this in the biblical text, but one of the reasons why I don't think Abraham uh, questions it is because he's used to it. He's used to God's asking for child sacrifice. I can't prove that, though. And it's, and it's not until when he's about to, and God stops him. I'm great, there's great Reformation art, I mean, uh, Renaissance art, where, like, uh, Caravaggio painting, one of my favorites, where, like, the thrust is coming down, 
And then the angel's got his hand right there to stop them. Very powerful. Okay. You know, that's, that's, I guess that's kind of beside the point. All right, anyways. Um, all right, so what this means then. Uh, well, let's just kind of work through what this means. Um, what helps begin to understand the story is what the place is finally called. The Lord will provide. It's not the place where Abraham passed the test. The Lord will provide. The place is called where the Lord provides. Um, the story can't merely be about the conversion from child sacrifice. I already just talked about this. Uh, oh, and then, yeah, okay, great. Um, the reason why it can't also be about Abraham's faith, because it makes the story one of deception, as though God is pretending, and in the end, Abraham gets off the hook, which makes grace cheap. All right? Um, and then about the emotions. There's nothing said about Abraham or Isaac and the emotions. I think that's on purpose because they're not on the page, but in your heart. The emotions that are happening in the story don't have to be written in the story because they're happening in you, or they should happen in you. If you ever watch movies, I, the use of voiceover, you know, where the image is, and then you hear somebody talking over the image, usually the, voice of voice, uh, the, use, the use of voiceover tells you how to feel about the image on the screen, which I, always, uh, it's, I think it's a ch- cheap trick for film directors. Great films, they don't have to do that. Uh, it's the same with the Bible here. The Bible doesn't have to say what's going on in Abraham and Isaac because it's, it's happening in you. What you're feeling is probably what's going on in Abraham and Isaac about these hard questions. So the question is, well, what's, this, what's the point of the story? Outside, the Lord provides, there is... There's not a lot going on, I think. So what kind of story has no point? I ask this question. Um, a story that needs to be wrestled with. I think this is the point of Genesis chapter 22, is that not all the questions will be answered because God, uh, because we're not given to answer them yet. But we are going to wrestle with that. And goes back to David's point. We'll go ahead and say it again, David. God is turning him every which way but look. That's exactly right. Now, and building, building on that, and uh, you know, the revelation of how God is different from the other gods, uh, a lot of sacrifices are made as a kind of <clears throat> bargaining. If I give you this, you'll give me that. Sure. And if God provides his own sacrifice, that's it. It's, that's, that doesn't come into play anymore. Right. Uh, which is exactly what happens, obviously, when Jesus comes, is that all that stuff's put away. The, um, the one thing is, is that this story can't be reduced to platitudes, which I, I, I just, uh, Luther has this great, great quote. I certainly admit my dullness. My donkey remains standing below and cannot ascend the mountain. Meaning, he, you know, for him to make that journey with Abraham and Isaac is beyond him. The, the place where he really feels comfortable about this story is with the lads and the donkey down at the, the bottom of the mountain. Yeah, Jake. The other thing I think when I read the story is that we have such a domesticated American view of God. I mean, like, you know, I think, I think you look at God and God's just saying, like, okay, good, it's on the mountain. And I think, like, one of the things is like for us that's pretty I mean I'm sure that's shocking for everybody but in the same 
telling Job, like, look, you know, I'm providing for the cheetah, and the cheetah killed, you know? Right. And it's like, we don't necessarily like or get that, but God calls himself a consuming fire. Yes. And it's like, you know, I think there's something to be said for we can't control God and, you know, and seeing that. That's right. So what, God, what kind of God is, is, is uh, revealed through this story? The one that you, all you got to do, a good job with relating to Job, because Job is also the one who had his family taken away, right? Um, and in chapter 34, I think, I, I, speaking out of the whirlwind, what kind of God's the one that you stand before silent, because you have nothing to say before this God? Rachel. Right. Exactly. So, uh, so for those who might not have heard, being be, being uh, being able to bear the burden of mystery, not being able to explain things. Of course, we are very comfortable with actually that. Even though Rachel said we're not. <clears throat> when are we comfortable with that? Rachel's absolutely right, though. But we, we tend to not wrestle with it when good things come out of our, come, come to us. What Rachel just described not only is the burden of mystery, but it, she also explained grace. The moment you are able to explain why Jesus died for you is the moment that you put something in between you and God. Because... We started this three weeks ago. Why does God choose Abraham? Because he chose Abraham. Why did God die for you? Because he died for you. You cannot get past that. If you do, then you put yourself above the grace itself, and it's no longer grace that's saved. But it's your knowledge, it's you, it's, it's whatever. The radical of this, though, is what, when God says, don't put your son between me and you. That is so hard to hear as a parent. Stanley Hauerwas, uh, I, I paraphrase at the very end of this thing. This is, uh, this is um, every father and mother's testing, by the way. He's, uh, I, again, I paraphrase this. The deepest enemy to Christianity is sentimentality. It is, most, is seen most clearly in Christian parents' unwill, in their Christian parents's unwillingness and having their children suffer for their convictions. I think that's something very very hard for us to kind of think about. But that does have to do with what kind of God we have. But David did a good job. Good job, David. Uh, the idea is that you know God doesn't let go of Abraham. does not resign. He doesn't, doesn't remove himself from Abraham's. But he will provide. And the only thing... Oh, so, so finally, though, at the very end... When he says, now I know, it does, it's a word, um, it, it's not that God did not know, of course he knew. But he also, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fuller realization. In fact, in Hebrews, not to get into the theology of Hebrews, but uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews talks about when Jesus becomes, uh, uh, he, he, became per, he became perfect in suffering. There's this, this unfolding of God's relationship with Abraham.
The word for provide can also be, it's, it's the word for, for see, uh, the word profit, which I didn't write that down. Ruach, I think, right? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Some Hebrew people over here. Good job. Um, so it could also be uh, translated as not only will the Lord provide, but the Lord will be seen or the Lord has been seen. So given that association with the Temple Mount, it talks about God's presence. In that moment, Abraham and Isaac are in complete communion with one another. This is the penultimate because the ultimate would be Mount Sinai, but the penultimate place, in, well, I don't know, that's arguable. Um, in the story, it's the ultimate place where God and Abraham are together, like communion with one another. So it is a, um, so yeah, God, Abraham does need to give up Isaac in order to be in that place. But of course, who else gives it up? Isaac has to give it up too. So it is a, is a fascinating little scenario where Abraham and Isaac and God have nothing in between each other. So I think that, is the, that comes to the point, is that when that happens, it's only out of God's provision. We can't explain it. We, we, you know, to imagine... I mean, right now, God, I don't, know, I don't think God has asked me to, to uh, offer my children up as burnt offerings. But I think it will come up in each one of our parents' lives. And children, because we're either a parent or a child, or some of us are both, but um, where we have to give up our children. But who are we giving them up to? God. And we can't. At times, we can question God. We can tell him, that's a terrible idea. But at the end of the day, we follow Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane because there's a whole Gethsemane connection from Matthew 26 and Genesis 22 where Christ says, not my will, but thy will be done. Abraham does the same thing. And then as children, um, we have to understand that when our parents do give us up, they give us up into the hands of God. And then we also have a purpose to live inside those hands. But um, So there's a lot going on here in this biblical text, and a lot of it is not necessarily explainable, but that's okay because that's just another facet of grace. Um, but at the same time, we can struggle with the story for the rest of our life, and the fact that we're struggling with the story is a, is a great sign of faith itself, just like Abraham. So let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.